Uh, this morning, we are going to be studying from the passage Matthew chapter 19. We're going to be looking at the story of the rich young ruler. And just off the top, it's, it's important that we understand this is not a parable. This is not um, a story that, that Jesus creates in order to teach us a biblical principle. This is a real-life encounter. This is historical narrative. And so this is a real event at a real time, at a real place that happened between real people. And so if you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 19, you can also find this in the Bible in front of you or beside you or around you, behind you. We have some black hardback copy Bibles just for such a time as this. And listen, it is, it is a great joy for us here at Perimeter Road Baptist Church that, that if you find yourself in need of a Bible, that you take this with you, that this becomes your own copy of God's holy word. This is true truth. This is the truth that we need to crowd out the lies and deception from the culture around us. We need to have God's uh, inerrant, uh, authoritative word nourishing our soul, and that's what you will find here in the Bible. So uh, in that Bible, we're on page 824 in the Black Hardback Bible. And so uh, if y'all would, let's read together Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. The word of God says, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to the disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your holy word. God, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through the scriptures and the teaching and preaching of the gospel. And Lord, thank you that you teach us about ourselves and our desperate situation, our desperate need for you as our savior. Lord, I pray as we focus intently on studying your word this morning, that it would not return empty, but rather it would produce in us a wellspring of life, that you would find in our souls fertile ground where your word can take root and produce fruit. Lord, I pray that we would love conviction of sin. God, I pray that we would hate evil, that we would hate unrighteousness, that we would uh, hate Uh, disobeying any of your commands or dishonoring your name. Father, I pray that we would love righteousness, that we would love holiness, that we would love goodness, that we would love the proclamation of the gospel and the exaltation of your son Christ. Father, I pray this morning that you would get me out of the way, that you would uh, fill me with your spirit, that you would fan the flame of your fire that is shut up in my bones and that it would be evident in the words that are spoken through me as your instrument. Father, I pray 
that your gospel would be clear. Penetrate our souls. Change us at the core of who we are that would bring glory to your great name. We thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I want to show you guys one rascal of a young man. The 17-year-old version of Will Cook. Do you ever see pictures from your past and ask yourself, what was I thinking? Happens to me all the time. Uh, Case in point, this picture that you're going to see this morning. My mom, (laughs) yeah, my mom dug this picture up from some nook and cranny in, in her home and she, she got it for us, but uh, there I am. I can't decide if I am applying for a job at Baggy Clothes R Us or auditioning for the Skinhead Mafia or both. I'm not sure. Um, it's crazy that my parents let me out of the house. And it's even crazier that I was able to have dates at this time frame in my life. Um, but praise be to God that social media was not around at this time. I'm very thankful for that. Uh, there is my first truck, uh, a Chevy 1500 single cab pickup truck. And so I got every dollar's worth of value out of that truck. And uh, we would take it on dirt roads. And because my truck was a two-wheel drive, I couldn't really bog as well as some of my friends. And so I had kind of a a mutual pact with some of my buddies who also had two-wheel drive trucks. And we would go on the dirt road and we would turn our truck sideways while the other person um, backed close to our truck. And then they would spin out as fast as they could and fling mud all over the side of our trucks. And then we would ride through town as if we had been mud bogging. (laughs) My senior year, one day after school, it was a Friday, our football coach had given us about a 30-minute window to leave campus and come back in order for pregame. And so my truck was loaded down. It was me, uh, my younger brother, uh, one of my friends named Pop. We were all in the front, and then we had another kid in the back of the truck as well. And so we're leaving the school parking lot just as cool as we could possibly be. I think all of us had our shirts off at the time. Um, Again, what was I thinking? I have no idea. And so the windows were down and the music was up and we were in this, you know, bumper to bumper, exit the school traffic. And so everybody's crazy. It's Friday. You're looking forward to the weekend. And we were headed to Dairy Queen because that was the spot. You could go and get fries or a Mr. Misty. Does anyone remember Mr. Misty's? Man, they need to bring those things back. They were so good. And so uh, you have to change the music about halfway through each song so that you listen to all the good music in the short amount of time that you have. And back in the day, we had these things called CDs. If you don't know what a CD is, it's basically a mini Frisbee um, that, that uh, you put inside your music player and it, it reads the disc and then it pumps out music. And when it gets all scratched up, you use it as a coaster for your cup on the end table. Um, So I had this sun visor that had this uh, CD holder on the visor. And so I flipped down my visor and I'm looking through all the different CDs that I had. And that's when it happened. Screeching tires, brake lights, smash, crashed my truck. It ended up being about an eight car pileup and I was somewhere in the middle. So I did not get a ticket for causing the accident. Just the rule of thumb is if you're at the back of the line, don't be the last one to, to run into all the traffic because you will get pinned with that. That's what happened in that situation. But I had um, the, the back windshield of the truck, the back glass shattered. And so we had glass kind of stuck in our backs. They had to put duct tape on our back and kind of rip it off to get all those little shards out. But that was really the extent of our injuries. We were very, very fortunate. It didn't get any worse than that. Um, the only thing that was really hurt was obviously my pride. Um, but don't worry, I, I rebuilt that pretty quickly. Um, the, the moral of the story is when you drive distracted, you are setting yourself up for destruction. And we know this. This is kind of a, a rule that we ingrain, especially into young teenagers as they're learning to drive. 
But not only is driving while distracted disastrous, we would do well to live with the understanding that when our hearts are distracted away from God, we are destined for destruction. Simply put, distraction leads to destruction. And in the text that we have read this morning, we see the historical count of a man with an incredibly important question for Christ. In fact, I would go as far to say, we need more people who are pondering this question. What should I do? How do I gain eternal life? What steps do I need to take? What, what is the, the, the key to opening the door of eternal life? Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And, and this is a question that various cultures across various time periods, people have asked similar types of questions, right? And, and often we ask it from the wrong angle, and that's what happened here. Uh, this man is asking, uh, asking a good question, but he's coming at it from, from the wrong angle. And we're going to see that as this story unfolds for us. Uh, let's revisit here, Matthew chapter 19, verse 17. The man says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. So straight out of the gate, Jesus is trying to reset the question, saying, why are you asking me about these good things? In other words, bro, you're coming at it from the wrong angle. I'm glad that you are thinking about eternal life. There's nothing wrong with that, but you have the wrong approach because you have put the bulk of all of the the work required for eternal life on yourself. You're saying, what do I need to do? What accomplishment uh, do I need to strive for? What effort do I need to put forth in order to gain eternal life? You might know that this account is also recorded for us in Mark and Luke. You see in Mark chapter 10, 18, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now there is a little bit of tongue in cheek here, okay? Christ did not discourage him from calling him good, but in fact, he's actually trying to say, why are you calling me good? No one is good except for God, wink, wink whom you happen to be talking to, okay? You have no power to do this goodness in and of yourself, but if you will follow me, as we're gonna see later, Christ teaches, it's following after him, right? Therein is the key. This is also the phrasing we find in Luke 18, 19. Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. And so here is the assertion. Christ is not just some prophet. He's not just some good teacher. He's not just some rabbi who has a few tips or tricks or secrets of success for you to continue living a good life. Christ is the essence of all that is good. He is God himself. And you see, we have to understand that our understanding of good, our definition of good, our description of good almost always fall short of God's goodness. The two just do not compare. And so we have these scripture verses that we are putting before you in our Memorize 2019 Challenge. Last week, I think we had uh, Romans chapter three, verses 10 through 12, and that was a tongue twister for me. None is good, no one is righteous, no, not one, for none has done the goodness that, that God expects of him. And then this week, uh, Clint got the good passage. He got the easy one, Romans 3.23, right? Um, so we see, why are, we're not trying to depress you guys. We're, we're not trying to send you out of here thinking, oh, I'm, I'm not good, I don't measure up, I'm a failure. Just like that, that girl said when I was 14 years old, like, your prophecy's coming true. No, that's not what we're saying. We are saying, don't look within yourself for whatever you think it takes to impress God. Your worth to, to the Lord is not in and of your own might. It's not in and of your own strength. It's not in your intellect. It's not in your ability to do good things for others. It's not in your ability to attend church as many times as you can in a month. This is not what God is after. We are not good. Isaiah chapter 64 verse six says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. 
So we know in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve partake of the forbidden fruit. And we know that as a result, a great cosmic catastrophe occurs. There are all of these separations. And the greatest of which is that mankind has been severed from a right relationship with God. And we see this here. Sin separates us from the Savior. Sin pulls us away from God. And when that happens, we are incapable of bridging the gap again. Romans chapter three, verses 10 through 12. Here it is. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And it is absolutely paramount, vital, that we understand this doctrine We cannot buy into the false ideologies that say, you're a good person, you just happen to occasionally do bad things. The Bible doesn't support that. In fact, the Bible goes at great lengths to teach that we are not good people. There's no goodness in us. David teaches in the Psalms that even in conception, he was a sinner. And so I was teaching our students this morning, I was like, look, a lot of people will say, you are a sinner because of the sins you have committed. I believe the Bible says we sin because we are sinners, because we have the sin DNA imprinted onto our spiritual hearts as a result of Adam and Eve. You can see that in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, this inherited sin, this doctrine of sin. And so here's what we need. Before we can have our eyes open to the wonderful depth and breadth of God's grace, mercy, and love towards us, we need to realize the wretchedness of our own sinfulness. It is this truth that the rich young ruler could not grasp. He was incapable of seeing. His blinders were on to wherein he believed there was some goodness within. And so he approaches Christ, says, okay, good teacher, I think you're so smart. Now, what do I need to do in order to please God? So what does Christ do? He brings up the law. Jesus Christ then begins talking to him about God's commands. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And then he jumps into the uh, Levitical law here, love your neighbor as yourself. He repeats that in Matthew chapter 23, the law. So the man takes kind of a, a quick assessment of himself. He says, I've done all these things. All of these things I've done. Which by the way, Christ does not affirm, okay? He does not affirm this man's assertion. Jesus doesn't say, oh yeah, you're right. You've done all these things, so you're good. But, but what we must understand is why did Jesus bring the commands up in the first place? For what purpose are these commands mentioned by God? And I think Warren Wiersbe hits the nail on the head. He says, Jesus did not introduce the law to show the young man how to be saved, but to show him that he needed to be saved. Maybe you think of the law as if I follow these guidelines, then God will be happy with me. If I can keep these 10 commands, then that's what God wants. Or maybe I'll look even at the uh, greater uh, law, the 600 plus commands that are found in the Pentateuch. And maybe if I can uh, spend my life trying to accomplish these 600 things, God will be pleased with me and I can gain favor with him. I can earn admittance into heaven. You see, when I sit down with my students, and we go through this discipleship process, I've gotten to the point where I love to ask the question and have them write out an answer. What reason? What reason will God allow someone into heaven? And students brought up in the church or students from outside the church almost always say, as a reward for living a good life or some version of that statement. God rewards us for doing good things. God rewards us for this, God rewards us for that. And as a result, God will allow me to enter heaven. And I think we confuse the purpose of the commands and therefore we reach this conclusion. You see, the commands are not intended to save. There are several good purposes for the commands that God gives, but one, first and foremost, is to show us just how awful we are. Just how miserable we are at being the men and women that God demands us to be, right? Think of it like a thermometer. 
I've heard pastors use this analogy. I like it. I'll use it. A thermometer is great at determining your temperature, but it is powerless to change it. You've heard me say before, if I were to go to a theme park and want to ride on a roller coaster, there is a sign that says you must be this tall to ride the roller coaster. Now that sign points out a great observation. I am not tall enough to ride the roller coaster, but what can the sign not do? It cannot raise my height. So too, the law is great at helping us to see that we fall oh so short of God's commands, but the law does not change our status. Still, we buy into this notion. If I do enough good things, if I say enough kind words, if I pray enough heartfelt prayers, or if I muster up as much faith from deep inside as possible, God will be pleased. It's just like this man because he viewed himself as a command keeper and a rule follower based on two things. The common Jewish understanding of the law and his ability to avoid offending others. What do I mean by that last part? You see, in the Ten Commands, the first four Commands one, two, three, and four are pertinent in our relationship to God. Matt Chandler says, it's the vertical relationship between your soul and God the Father. Those four commands relate from you to the Lord. But the next command, six through 10, relate from you to others, right? And so here, what commands do we have that Christ mentions? Number six, number seven, number eight, number nine, right? We, we have these back end laws that are given. And so the man thinks, well, I'm not offending anybody. As a matter of fact, I do a pretty good job of keeping to myself. I don't say unkind words to others. I don't uh, lie to others. I'm not after another man's wife. I'm not doing any of these things. So I'm a good person, right? And therein is the measurement of ourselves to others. Nowhere in God's text does he say, compare yourself to another Christian. And if you act better than him or think better than him or speak better than him, then you are a better Christian. But we do that internally. We have this compare and contrast model. Well, we're always thinking, well, I don't, I don't read my Bible as much as this person, but you know what? I, I am more generous with my money. Or I don't uh, pray as often with my children as this parent does, but I do pray more with my spouse than this other person does. And so we, we keep this ongoing checklist. And, and, and if we think in our hearts that we're checking off enough of those bullet points, then we feel like we have a good relationship with God. That's how this man was. He felt like he could check off enough bullet points to impress God the Father. And I love how Jesus closes with the Leviticus nineteen eighteen, love your neighbor as yourself, okay? Uh, that is one that he emphasizes in, in the gospels, when, when he's asked, what is the greatest command? It's love the Lord your God with all your heart, your whole, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And then he says, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, right? On all the law hang these two commands, okay? But he never affirms that the man is actually good at keeping these. So what Christ does is, as we'll see, he kind of puts his finger precisely on the area where the man needed to be probed, okay? The man has now become so distracted with religion that his willpower, his self-control, determination, discipline, and effort that he fails to see the truth Christ is laying out for him. God's will is not that we only follow the commands, but more importantly, we follow the Christ. Faith is the essential substance needed to follow Christ. The rich young ruler possessed strong faith in himself while lacking faith in God. Thank you, Father, that we have this text before us. Thank you that, that we see our tendency to puff ourselves up or to feel as though we can muster enough strength to hide our blemishes, to hide our faults, to hide our failures. A diamond, there are probably many diamonds in this room this morning set in engagement bands or uh, necklaces around your neck, but a diamond, before it's, it's set in a jewelry setting, endures a series of master cuts by a jeweler. The craftsman will spend significant time with the diamond, cutting edge after edge after edge. Each cut will be more intricate than the last. And when the jeweler is finally finished, obviously the product is nothing short of amazing. It takes your breath away and your savings account. The diamond shines, it sparkles, and it beams with a glow of light that is unprecedented. Yet, 
The diamond is not perfect. In the world of gemology, I'm talking like I'm a gemologist. I, I don't know anything about diamonds except they cost a lot of money. There's a common saying, there is no such thing as a perfect diamond. We can work the diamonds and we can cut the diamonds and we can craft the diamonds to appear as though they are flawless. But maybe it's the clarity of the rock that is lacking. Maybe there's a, a cloudy part deep inside the diamond or, or maybe there's a tiny dot of carbon that has yet to crystallize inside the diamond. And maybe it's as tiny as a uh, speck of pepper. But that is enough to say this diamond is not perfect. And here's the point. Although the diamond has been cut to demonstrate the highest quality and the highest purity, what the cuts do is help distract from the imperfection. Humans have a natural tendency to diminish their moral flaws and become distracted with decent moral behavior. And just to further illustrate how distracted this man was and too how distracted we become, Jesus raises the stakes. He goes the extra mile. So never mind the fact that Christ is silent on whether or not he agrees or affirms this guy's assertions. What he does is he presses in on the deepest distraction existing in this man's life. And Jesus always knows the heart of the matter. He always knows how to get to the core of what's really taking place inside our soul of souls. Jesus always knows. God understands the depths of our hearts, the entireties of our personhood, far greater than we could possibly imagine or comprehend. In fact, we would say, yes, God knows us better than we know ourselves. God sees past our trophies. He sees past our triumphs. He sees our scars, our shames, our secrets. Yes, in the depths of our soul, often the place that we fear to look ourselves, God is there. And he is there with a comprehension of who we are and that, that knowledge of God's omniscience, his all-knowingness should sober us and soften us. So what does Christ do? Matthew chapter 19, 21 through 22. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away. Follow you? When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now, again, we have some wordplay taking place here. Earlier in this encounter, uh, Christ and the man are talking about good things and good deeds and, and, and good personality traits and being uh, just an upright, good person. Now Jesus says, you wanna be perfect? And so it's almost as if we, we see, okay, goodness is not good enough. We, we've made that clear. So what is perfection? What is perfection? So it's this Greek term, teleice, uh, teleice. Uh, it has this connotation of completion. Parents, if you have little ones at your house or you have had little ones at your house, then you've probably had puzzles so let's think of uh, putting a massive puzzle together, maybe a 5,000 or 10,000 piece puzzle. I'm, I'm not a puzzle putter togetherer, so I don't know what I'm talking about. But I just imagine if you had this huge table in your garage and that table served the purpose of being the puzzle platform, then you are a puzzle hobbyist. And so you get this box, maybe it's an American flag or maybe it's the Statue of Liberty or maybe it's the Grand Canyon, uh, America. And so you've got this uh, landscape before you and you've got 10,000 puzzle pieces and you spend weeks, weeks at this puzzle platform. You're putting all these pieces together and you finally uh, reach the night that you've been waiting for. You know that there's only 50 or 100 pieces left and so you've saved that for this particular night. You get all the way to the finish and you realize there's one piece that is missing. You don't know if your crazy Labrador, Murray, or Chubb ate the piece. You don't know if your two-year-old walked off with it and ate the piece. You don't know what happened to this piece of the puzzle, but you know it is not perfect. So that warm, that fuzzy feeling that you were expecting is not only gone, but now it is replaced with incompletion, exasperation, complete and total frustration. You're not complete. 
often God stirs our spirits to help us see we are not complete apart from him. We lack perfection. What is missing? God. Jesus says you want to be fully good, you want to be complete, you want to be whole, you want to be perfect, then go and sell all you have. Give it away. Serve the poor. And this is precisely what the man didn't want to hear. Yet God knows the heart. Christ illuminates the overarching idol in this man's life. And this was the idol that prevented him from trusting in God for eternal life. Was it not the the older brother of the prodigal son who languished when the prodigal returned? And his father, through this elaborate celebration, he got the royal robe, he got the fattened calf, and all the servants were, were uh, hemming it up, making a big deal out of this boy coming home. There was a ring on his finger, and the older brother comes in. He says, you've got to be kidding me. He took his inheritance and wasted it? He went and lived in a wild lifestyle, spending money on God knows what, and now that he, all he had to do was come home, and you're throwing him a party? Look at all the stuff I've done. Look at how hard I have worked for you, Father. Look at how I've obeyed all of your wishes. Where's my party? Yeah, the boy wanted the party. He wanted the reward that he had worked so hard to receive. But listen, the kingdom of heaven is not a reward of man's hard work. The kingdom of heaven is received by faith. What does the man do? He wanted to be rewarded for his work. Instead, he walks away sorrowful. Christ says, follow me. He turns his back and goes the other direction. This man did not, in fact, love his neighbor as himself. Maybe, just maybe, the ideals that he had about himself were true. Perhaps he did not offend other people But Christ-like love, agape love, the love that God has goes beyond merely avoiding offense, right? We're talking about a a love that the Bible prescribes as selfless and sacrificial, this love your neighbor as yourself. It costs. The love that God expects his people to have is a costly love. Love. This is the love of Christ, the love commanded by God. Yes, it is selfless. Yes, it is sacrificial. It is a risky love. It is the kind of love that led Moses to walk out of the Egyptian palace and into the wilderness and later rally against the authorities. A costly love. Where in Hebrews it said, Moses chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasure of sin. What love. What love. It is the kind of love that Hosea has for Gomer, where even though Gomer, time after time after time, plays the role of the harlot and leaves her faithful husband, he continues to chase after this woman. Godly, selfless, sacrificial love. Where does this love come from? It is the kind of love that that Stephen has in the book of Acts, where as he's serving in the church and he's taking on these humble roles that have been assigned to him, an angry mob secures him and takes him away and they they pelt him with rocks until he's dead and with his dying breath, he imitates the words of Christ as he says, Father, forgive them. What love? Where does a person get this sort of love? From God. When a person clutches the truth of God's love for them, despite their own rebellion, There is an appreciation, there is a zeal, there is a passion for God that surpasses worldly understanding. The redeemed are so grateful to God for salvation that love for God is born. This is true worship. The rich young ruler could not destroy his distraction of riches because he did not truly love God. He did not truly love God because he falsely believed that he could gain salvation by doing good deeds. This man's distraction brought his destruction. And here's what is so insane. For those of us who hear the gospel, who belong to a church, 
is that we understand these biblical truths. Don't be distracted by worldly things or don't be distracted by temporary things. We know that God is a jealous God and we should have no other gods before him, although that command wasn't brought up. It is clear to see that, yes, he did have other gods that took precedence over Yahweh, over Christ. Aren't we often guilty of running into the same trap? I didn't say fall into the same trap. I said running into the same trap. Don't we as believers fight and clamor tooth and nail for these things that can trip us up if we don't handle them properly? We long for lives free of pain, free of hardship, filled with things that bring us joy. What a wonderful God that he would pinpoint those idols in our hearts and that he would destroy them for us before we destroy ourselves. He puts his sovereign finger in the gaping holes of our hearts because we are prone to look for joy outside of God. Yes, wealth is a scary, common, false source of joy. Wealth is a scary, common idol, but it's far from the only one. Academic achievement, athletic accomplishment, popularity, notoriety, career advancement, friendship, marriage, children, healing, None of these things are evil in and of themselves. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We do that because God is so gracious to give us good gifts. And before you know it, we take these incredible blessings and we elevate them above the giver. It would be likened to a young bride treasuring her engagement ring more than her groom. And sometimes we find ourselves bargaining with the Lord. God, if you bless me with a godly spouse or if you grant me children of my own or if you heal my loved one, then I will fill in the blank. What will we do? Worship God? Do we only worship God for the temporary blessings that he offers? I love that several months ago, my wife and I were just having a conversation. I probably had my feet up while she was uh, doing the dishes or vacuuming or scrubbing the windows, who knows. But she was speaking truth into my life at the time. And she said, man, I've, I've been soaking up this word and I've been reading these authors. And I love that this one person takes the psalm that says, the Lord will give you the desires of your heart and puts a spin on it. Because growing up, I was told, man, you, you serve the Lord, you commit yourself to the Lord, you obey the Lord, and, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. You wanna be tall, he'll give that to you, right? But she said, now I'm starting to see that God gives us the desires in our heart. He changes our desires. He remakes our desires. He dreams for us and puts that dream inside of us. So no longer do we waste our time or our energy, our affections on things that will fade away. But God gives us new desires, desires to glorify him, to honor him, to serve those around us that other people would know and receive salvation from Christ and Christ alone. What treasure So no, we do not bargain with God as if he is a banker. He is our creator. He is our judge. And failure to worship God rightly will bring sure and eternal judgment. Making a deal with God for what he might bring into your life is not true love. Let me restate that first sentence. Making a deal with God for what he might bring into your physical life is not true love. This is idolatry. It is making the health he can offer or the spouts he, th- he can offer or the wealth he can offer more magnificent, more magnificent than the savior he is. God and God alone is worthy. There's a pastor who says it this way. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. We don't need Christ and we need Christ 
And this is what God does. And this is why it is so merciful of him to break us. This is why he disciplines us. He chastises us and maybe even painfully takes away what we value in the world. He doesn't do this to rob us of joy. No, he does this to bring us joy. God works in our lives to help us see that he is our greatest good. You wanna have life in the fullest? It's in Christ. What if it costs us something near and dear to our hearts? What if we have to lose something? Well, we do it joyfully because Christ means more. What if there is a cross that we need to bear? We bear it with joy because our joy is in Christ. The rich young ruler placed more value in his stuff than in this savior. If God were to tell you, sell, give away, or maybe even destroy some idol today, what would it be? Pastor Brian and I were texting back and forth this week. It's been a crazy week, a good week. And we were going over this passage together and we came to the conclusion, what a sobering text. We must refuse to let any distraction in this life prevent us from experiencing the greatest good in the universe, which is salvation in Christ alone. Now, this will not be easy for us to do. Destroying something that is in our heart or, or something that our heart has clamped onto or, or clutched deeply is downright impossible. Matthew chapter 19, verse 23 and following, it says, Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you have a church background, hang with me for a moment. Growing up in a church family, man, we were at the church every single Sunday. It's like my old camp director used to say, uh, I had a drug problem. My mom drugged me to church every week, right? Um, guilty as charged. But, but this idea of the camel fitting through the needle kind of got lost in translation along the way. And so you would have preachers or pastors kind of teaching the idea that this needle, the eye of the needle, is a title of a narrow opening, maybe in the cliffs along a road where journeymen would often travel. And so they would, they would be in these groups and the camels were way too tall for this opening. And so the riders would have to dismount and they would have to take their baggage off of the camel and they would have to kind of crawl through themselves while holding on, is that a leash that the cam, I'm not a camel rider. The, they would have to kind of pull the camel down and through at the same time and then go back and get their luggage and pull that through and then they could get back on the camel, right? That just doesn't fit the context here because what Christ is proposing is the impossibility for human effort to merit salvation. You cannot get off of anything on your own or unload your burdens or, or pull something through. This is not up to you, right? This is the work of Christ. Salvation is in him and him alone. We see that and we want to embrace that and we say, I can't get through the eye of the needle by myself. I'm too big of a camel. So I'll remake the needle. I'll make the needle bigger. It's the mindset of America. We've got a problem to solve. We're going to solve it. We cannot change God's standards. We cannot create new formulas for what God demands of us so that we can now appease God. We can't remake the needle. Here in this metaphor, we realize that heaven is the goal, that eternal life is what we are aiming for. And the only way to hit the bullseye is by realizing what Christ has accomplished for us. That it is only in his perfect life and his death on a cross and his resurrection that when rightly believed and understood, therein lies eternal life. You know how I know that we as church people and, and Christians don't want to embrace this teaching. We don't want to embrace 
the destruction of distractions. We want eternal life. Just getting real with y'all, as a pastor, we want distractions. We want both. We surround ourselves and we surround our children with all the riches that this world can afford. We work insane hours. We worry immensely all for the sake of money. We argue about money. We lose friends because of money. We see families split due to money. And this happens in the church. Church people are guilty of this. I am guilty of this. We push our children to earn good grades or perform well on the field or on the court so that they can reach the next level on the path to a career in hopes that they can earn a lot of money so that they can be successful, so that they can be secure. And what does Christ say? It is impossible for rich men to enter the kingdom of heaven. Folks, why do we burden ourselves with distractions? Why do we run to them? Let us push out the noise of our culture let us recognize it as lies, that money is not our greatest joy, that marriage is not our greatest joy, that children are not our greatest joy, that companionship is not our greatest joy, that food is not our greatest joy, that sexual intimacy is not our greatest joy, that none of the things that this world can offer are our greatest joy is Christ. Here's what I'm convinced of. We must recognize God's commands Exodus is clear. You shall have no other gods before me. So we identify these false gods. We identify these idols. We identify these things that have their chains around our hearts and we utterly destroy them. How could God ask so much of us? How could he ask me to lose the thing that I love? How could he ask me to hold it in the palm of my hand rather than clench it tightly in my fist? Folks, God is the very one who sets the example. God is the one who takes what is most dear, what is most precious, what is most beloved by him, and he offers it freely. He doesn't merely offer it freely. He downright crucifies it on the cross. This is his one and only son. This is his treasure. This is flesh of his flesh. This is being of his being. This is Christ that God doesn't keep to himself, but realizing our sinful state, he offers and crucifies Christ on the cross. Jesus takes our place. He takes upon himself the shame of sin and the agony of God's full wrath as poured out for sinners. Here's what I'm convinced of. Rather than being consumed with all that we do, we must focus on why we do what we do. Christ says salvation is impossible with so-called good deeds alone. We must have faith in him as the reason for being made right with God. Matthew chapter 19, verse 29. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Our brothers and sisters just returned, just stepped foot off the airplane from sharing the gospel in Beirut, Lebanon. And what a testimony for them to say, man, we shared the gospel with this person who comes from a Muslim background. And despite the cost, despite the fact it may rip her from her family, she has prayed to receive Christ. Her faith is in Christ alone. Folks, do you realize how privileged I am to have my family travel to support me in preaching the gospel? This is not the biblical expectation. The biblical expectation is take up your cross and follow me. Follow, follow you, give, give everything I have away, sell, give it to the poor. And the man sorrowfully turns his back on Christ. Folks, may we not place our hope in the things of this world, but in the creator of the world. Let us not elevate the gifts above the giver. Let us not have our hearts drawn to things that will not last, but let us be satisfied in the Savior who loves us and gave everything he had to us in order that we might become his 
Jesus is the one who makes the impossible possible. He is the one who is truly good. Christ has lived the life we could never live. He died the death we deserve to die, and he offers a reward we could never earn, to be resurrected with God the Father to eternal life just as he is resurrected. This eternal life is now offered freely to those who by grace through faith believe. Eternal life is not realized by good performance. Eternal life is offered by the good person, Christ. Do you believe? Let us pray. Father, thank you for putting your finger on the idols in our hearts. Father, thank you for being a very personal and intimate God. You know us at the core of our beings and you love us still. At great great cost to yourself, you offer salvation, Father. May we embrace it. May we believe that Christ is the Messiah that he is who you say he is, that your word is true, that we are insufficient in ourselves to work or earn, receive eternal life anyway apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus is better. Lord, strengthen us, enable us, equip us by the power of your Holy Spirit to overcome any temptation that would pull us away from our treasure in Christ, that would attempt to replace or outdo the joy that we have in you. God, may we destroy idols at the power of your name. May we have an unshakable faith that no matter what happens in this life, we belong to you. Lord, I pray now for the lost, that your spirit would convict and provide courage for them to acknowledge the wretched state of their soul. Lord, and you would give them the ability to proclaim Christ as Savior that their belief would no longer be in the things of this world or in themselves, but their belief would be in Christ alone. Father, I pray for us as Christians that we would not run to the things of this world, but God, we would run to you. That Lord, just as you say for us to follow you, that we would. Lord, that we would count it great joy that no matter what you call us to lay down, God, we realize we are found in your grace. To the glory of Christ, our King, we pray these things. Amen.